Let's get started with um, week three in a new series, uh, moving from uh, what is to what if. Uh, we're looking, we're springboarding off some material I encourage you to get in a book by James Alexander. You guys sold it out two weeks in a row, so at this point, you know, uh, if, you didn't get, if you didn't grab one, you can still get them on Amazon, but James Alexander's book, The God Guarantee, it's been a little bit of a guide for us, and what we're doing is we're looking at a biblical pattern for, for living, a, a rhythm in a sense of accessing God's provisions and His peace. What we've discovered, if you've been with us on the first couple of weeks of this little journey here, there is a four-part pattern. It's repeated over and over and then over again in Scripture, and it reflects a pattern of living, a way of understanding life that Jesus both understood and modeled for us. A lesson that Mark, who chronicled the life of Jesus, said or referred to as the lessons of the loaves. When the disciples were scared out on a lake one time, uh, they had just experienced a teaching and they still didn't get it. And Mark said they didn't get it because they hadn't learned the lesson of the loaves. So that's what we're trying to figure out together. This concept, excuse my voice, I'm going to struggle through this. Um, this concept's first seen in the only pre-resurrection miracle that all four of the New Testament gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them deemed necessary to include in their work about Jesus. Now think about it, okay? If all four of these men who were writing at different times to different audiences in different places, all four of them said of all the things that Jesus did, said, taught, all of them said, you know what, you got to include this one. It's got to be something kind of special about this. The miracle I refer to, in fact, by the, by the way, right, this is also, it, in a sense, sometimes if you, because we're so familiar with some of these stories, we just go, well, that's a, a miracle story. But it's not a story. It's recorded history with numerous quantifiable, verifiable witnesses that have and report firsthand accounts. And, and they were writing contemporaneous to the event. The miracle I'm referring to, even if it's your first time in church, you probably have heard of it. It's called the feeding of the 5,000. And, and honestly, that's just one more reason to believe the historicity of the story because all four writers recording it know that if it wasn't true, there were 5,000 men and up to 10 or 15,000 women and children who could have stepped forward and said, that's not what happened. Here's what happened as John recounts it. Jesus saw a great crowd coming towards him. And he said to Philip, one of his disciples, Philip, where do you think we're going to get bread? Where should we buy bread for all these people to eat? What Mark records, John records is this. He, he asked this simply to test them because he already had in mind what he was going to do. Why did he ask him? To test them. To see what he thought. He wanted to see, now that he'd been following Jesus for a little while, do you understand? Do you think any differently than you did when we first met, when you first began following me? And he didn't. He didn't. He, the world of what is was still his world, right? Lots of people and just a little bit of food. He hadn't moved over to the little bit of food, really big God way of living yet. And so Philip answers Jesus, much like we might. Jesus, he says, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each of these people to have one bite. In fact, another disciple yells out, send them home. And yet another, a third of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he speaks up and he goes, well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and a couple of fish, but 
How far is that going to go amongst so many? Now, the amazing part of this story that we all know, many of us, that have been, I mean, if you went to Sunday school as a little kid, you heard this. All three of his disciples, these are the men we name our kids after, right? All of them have been walking with Jesus. They'd seen the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers healed. But their faith is dwarfed by that of a little boy who had childlike faith, who saw things differently than they did the kind of faith that Jesus says you and I are going to have to change to have in order to actually experience and enter the kingdom of God. Well, you know how the story turns out. Jesus says, everyone have a seat. And he takes the loaves, he gives thanks, he breaks them, and he distributes to all of who were seated. Here's how John records it. As much as they wanted, not just one bite. And then he did the same thing with the fish. And that is where we see the pattern displayed for the first time. That's the pattern I'm encouraging us to think through, maybe move in and walk in as we start this new year, 2020, together. Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gives it. And so last week, we began looking at these concepts, the taking of the bread. As Alexander describes it, he sees it as recognizing capacity in what we have. Now, if you weren't here last week, you missed the opportunity for me to subliminally, very slyly and subliminally, place in your mind the thought that I look like Ryan Gosling. <laughs> and now I know you can't get it out, right? It's there. I'd like to thank the staff for putting the online poll up. That was very kind of you. Um, my own daughter voted against me. And one person in the comments wrote, because I think the picture was me and Ryan Gosling, and it said, twins, yes or no? And one person in, in the comments section said, if one of them was involved in a horrible accident and was transported 10 years into the future, yes. It's a rough crowd, man. That was my nephew, too. That was the worst part rough. Last week, as I recover, last week, if you weren't here, we looked at this concept, the difference between potential and capacity. Big shout out, as I said, uh, to the staff for having some fun with that. But we want really, you, we want everybody to think through this, right? Because opportunity is kind of what we sell to our kids all of the time. Capacity is different. Capacity means it's, it's, in a sense, the fulfillment of the opportunity God's created in each and every thing and each and every person for his purposes and glory. Being open to seeing the capacity in every person, in everything, and hear me on this, being open to seeing the capacity in you is different than potential. Potential is limited, Tangible things that we explore without God's intervention is where potential leads us to. Potential is what we do when we work really hard, when we give things our best efforts. Maximizing potential is based on our capabilities, and it's limited to what we can do. Searching for potential, if you think about it, it just encourages you to be intuitive and hardworking, but not prayerful and open. Capacity, now hear me on this. Capacity can be seen only with God's perspective because it's based on his ability and his provision. It's what that young boy saw in the bread. What could God do with what I've been given? 
See, potential is limited. Capacity is limitless. And understanding the difference is crucial. Jesus, when the, little, the, the, the young man comes forward with the loaves, Jesus has a mindset like the young boy. He doesn't look and say, this is limited. If Jesus was dealing in the world merely of potential, he would have taken the bread and, and sliced it up really thin. It would have been like our communion wafers here at Mendham going out to the people on the hillside. But instead, Jesus saw the capacity of what God could do for his people. Now, I want to add a second piece to this concept of, of capacity for you. Taking what God has given us, looking for capacity in our lives, believing that God could do something with us, our stuff. If we're willing to leave the world of what is and move towards what if, if we embrace that concept that with all things God is, with everything, with God, everything is possible. If we begin with our time, our talents, our stuff, to instead of, instead of, Jesus takes the bread and he looks heavenward. He doesn't look out at what the disciples think. He doesn't look out at the hungry crowd. But he takes what he has and he looks heavenward. And he sees what God could do with it for God's purposes, not his. That's the key. He takes it, limited as it is, as, as it is, and he thinks about what God could do with it. But here's the second part. He sees what God could do with it for God's purposes, not his. This is a major transformative change in the way we have to think. See, I want to believe in the capacity of God. I want to see myself, my talents, my resources. I want to look at them and, and think differently and think, wow, what could God do with all of these things? Maybe he'll multiply them like he did the loaves. But when I investigate my motive for that, oftentimes it's because then think about what I would have. Like if God would come through for me on this, with this stuff, if I just offer this to God, then look at all I'll get back. And it'll be for my purposes and my wins and my successes and my benefits. I quite naturally want to leverage the blessings of God for me. But the pattern of what God is up to in the world is clear from the first time he calls Abraham. Abraham's the first time God re-engages with humanity after the fall. He engages with a man. And he tells Abraham, your family, from which the line Jesus would come, your family is going to, I'm going to bless them so they will be a blessing. Jesus had a brother. His name was James. James wrote a book in the New Testament. James understood that we have this bent to try to leverage God's abundance, what God would be willing to do in our lives for our own use and our own good. I mean, think about it. Jesus was his big brother. Imagine having Jesus as your big brother, like the trump card that that is, right? You know, work in the room. See Jesus over there? That's my brother. Do you know what, you do? hey baby, do you know what he could do for me? Imagine the car I could be pulling up in, right? Jesus is my big brother. You guys might like him. You might think you know him. He's my brother. So I should be able, I should be at first in line. I mean, Jesus, he could do anything, and I'm his brother. But my guess is that James understood his own heart a little bit and began to understand something that's very common because here's what he wrote. He was speaking about the scarcity mindset, Right? What causes fights and quarrels amongst you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, and so you kill. 
You covet, you can't get what you want, you want. So you quarrel and fight. You think that the life is just a zero-sum game. There's only so much pie to go around, and if I don't get mine, right, you're going to take yours, and I'm not going to have enough for me. So James draws this conclusion. He says, you don't have because you don't ask God. And then when you do ask God, you don't receive because why? Why? You don't have God's provision because you haven't asked him. You haven't learned the lesson of the loaves. You haven't taken what you had and lifted it to heaven. And even then, when you have done those things, when you believe that God might be able to do something great with what you have, you don't receive. Why? What do we do that interrupts the pattern of provision? What is the number one killer of capacity in our lives? Why is it that so many of us have this experience of, I ask God, I ask God, I ask God, but I never receive? James would say, I would guess that he would probably go, you know, I used to do that. But then I realized I was asking with the wrong motives. You ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. See, Jesus doesn't look at the capacity of the bread, the little few loaves, and goes, man, wait till God does something with this bread and multiplies it, because these suckers are hungry, and I'm probably going to be able to spin these loaves at like $5 a loaf. The son of man who currently has no place to lay his head is about to enjoy a beachfront property right? He doesn't look at it and go, God has capacity to turn this into something, and therefore I'm going to leverage God's capacity for my own purposes. The lessons of the loaves is not that we take what we have offered to God and that'll bless it so we can have more. And especially as believers, I think this is something that we have to learn. And and preachers don't don't like to preach it because a lot of times, I mean, it doesn't sell. People don't want to buy this book, But if you're here this morning and you're not sure about the God thing, or or maybe you're keeping your wife happy or your boyfriend happy, maybe you haven't had this frustration because you're not trying to come to God. But if you are, if you're someone that's been trying to follow God and you experience this kind of common life frustration, you keep asking God, you keep praying, but you see so little results in your life, is it possible that James has us nailed? You know, Jesus actually tells a story about this deep pattern of life frustration that comes about when we don't understand the purpose of God's provision in our life. Matthew recorded it. Now, Matthew was a tax collector when Jesus met him. He, he was a, a Jewish citizen, but he had in a very real sense, he betrayed his own people and he began to work for the Romans, oppressing and extorting his own people for, for personal gain. And yet, one day along comes Jesus, and I imagine to the other disciples, chagrin and disdain, he offers Matthew into the inner circle. And so Matthew records much of what he experienced following Jesus. And in chapter 25 of what he wrote, he records several parables right in a row that Jesus used. The parable was a story. It wasn't a historical fact, right? The miracles were a historical fact verified by eyewitnesses. Parables are stories Jesus made up to teach a deeper point. Well, Matthew 25, he records several of them, stories that he talks about the kingdom of God with. I want to to show you the middle one. Check this out. Again, again, because he's in the middle of teaching a bunch of parables about the kingdom of God, it, the kingdom of God, is going to be like this. It's going to be like a man that went on a journey, that goes on a journey, and he calls his servants, and he entrusts them with his wealth. 
Okay, we got to answer the story, okay? There's a rich guy, and he's got some people that work for him, likely more than three, I would imagine, but he calls three of them together, and he says, I'm going to be gone for a little while, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you guys my stuff. The word entrust there carries with it the idea that what they're going to do is I'm giving you my stuff, and what I want you to do with my stuff is I want you to do with it what I would do if I was going to be, if I was going to be here. I'm not, so I'm entrusting it to you. This is not their money. This is not their stuff. They didn't do anything to deserve it. The master simply entrusted them with what he had and gave it to them. Now, now, stick with me here. What they have is his, and they're supposed to do with it not what they want. They aren't supposed to spend it on themselves. It's not like they go, man, my ship has come in. The master gave me his stuff. No, no, no. What they're supposed to do is do with that what the master would have done had he not left. They're not to hoard it. They're not to protect it. They're not to save it. They're not to spend it. They're to do the master's will with it, to invest it like he would. Jesus goes on. Well, to the first one, he gave five bags of gold. Now, other translations of this use the word talent there, and talent was a measurement. You could measure different things. You could measure gold. You could measure silver. In this case, the NIV says it was gold. So 20 talents, excuse me, uh, five talents of gold, which, as I understand it, was worth about 20 years of work for a day laborer, which is what the servants were. So here's what I'm going to say for us. Um, to just kind of make it contemporary. The median household income here in Mendham, New Jersey, and obviously this is a pretty wealthy town, um, and not all of us here are wealthy, but here's the stat. In Mendham, New Jersey, the median household income is $145,000 a year, which I don't even like sharing with you because half of you are totally bummed out right now and jealous, and, and the other half of you are going, well, I'm the man because I make a lot more than that. So I've caused every one of you to sin at this point, and I feel bad about that. <laughs> but we're going to stay in the story. Right? And so I'm going to assume that most people, most households around here, just to, to, make, to make this kind of palatable, the average household has dual incomes. So we're going to say the average salary maybe is $75,000. So in this case, if Jesus was telling us the story, what he would be saying was he gave to the first servant about $7.5 million. To the other two bags, uh, and to another one bag. Each, listen to me on this now, each according to his ability. And then he went on a journey. Each according to his ability, which I think speaks about what we talked about last week. That God did not create us all the same. We keep thinking that we're all just in a giant competition trying to do and achieve the same thing. And, and, and God's going, no, I, I didn't make you all to do the same thing. I, I gave you all different talents. I gave you all different abilities. I created you with, with, different, with a different purpose right? So these guys each have different abilities as money managers. Some of them are better at it, and the ones that were better at it got more of the money. Some of them, though, were probably better farmers or carpenters or fishermen, and if that was what the master was leaving, they would have been left more. They had different abilities. The assumption is the one who was good with money was given the most. So the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. He went at once. There's urgency involved in investing what the master had given him. He wasn't just sitting around and going, you know, master's gone. I got seven and a half cool here. I could just kind of hold on to this for a little while, take a few years off, big severance package in a sense. I'm just going to kick back, take things easy. 
But instead he goes right to work and invests, not, invests what he has, not for his gain, but for the master's gain. He understood what, what, was, what was not his and that, that, that the money wasn't his and that he had a responsibility to do with it what the master would have wanted. The second servant, he, he gets this too. So, the, the, so also the one with two bags, about $3 million worth of money, gains two more. But, I hate when there's buts in the Bible. A lot of times it's good on the other side of it, but this one, it's interesting, it's, it's not. But the man who received one bag went off, about a million and a half dollars, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. He buries it. He buries it. Now, stick with me here. He doesn't invest it. Not only does he invest it, he, he, he doesn't like take it to the bank and just put it in a simple savings account. He hides it. He's hiding the money from other people. Jesus says this literally guy, this guy gets a shovel and digs a hole and takes $1.5 million and hides it. So nothing can happen to it. Now, the audience has got to be sitting around going, well, can you imagine what could have been done with $1.5 million? The good that could have been done with $1.5 million? Why do you do that? story goes on. Jesus gives this interesting detail. He says, after a long time. It's interesting detail because the master wasn't gone for a day or two, apparently. It was a long time, like, I don't know, maybe it seemed like a lifetime. And you got to imagine at some point, these guys start going, you know, I'm not sure he's coming back. Maybe there was some temptation to give up and start spending the master's money the way that they would want, maybe on themselves. I mean, I mean, you know, you were gone a long time. The master, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settles account with them. And so the master, he probably knew that he'd been gone a long time. He's wondering what is these servants, what they've done with his stuff, how they've invested it. And so he comes back to settle accounts, to, to see what they did with what they'd been given over those years. Well, the man who received five bags of gold bought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. I, love, I can feel the excitement in his voice. It reminds me of when I would come home when my kids were young. I'd come home from work and they, they wanted to show me what they'd been working all day. See, daddy, they were proud of it. And they knew their dad would pretend he was interested. <laughs> See, look what you can sense. And I think, you know, obviously the master was interested. See, what I've done, you have to imagine over those years the joy of expectation that grew in their lives. See, these guys weren't frustrated or angry. They, they were working the master's money. They were creating for him a return. They lived with a sense of raw joy and excitement about what was coming. See, master? Well, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now, see, we read that. Now, stop there. We read it and go, yeah, you know, a few things. He wasn't faithful with a few things. His first century audience, he was faithful with 7.5 mil. That's not a few things. You've been faithful with a few things. But here's the detail. See, in the kingdom of God, 7.5 mil is not all that much. It's all about your perspective. See, you've been, you've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. And then, I love this, come and share your master's, hmm, 
I pause here because I think the next word is completely unexpected and fascinating. What did the servant get? Yes, in the kingdom to come, he gets many things. In the kingdom to come, okay, because money really is, in a sense, a test for us in this kingdom, what will be worthy of managing in the next kingdom. But in this kingdom, see, nothing is changing, folks. In this kingdom and in the kingdom to come, I'm still investing the master's money. None of it's mine anyway. So in the kingdom to come, I'm going to get to invest a lot more. So that's great. I'm going to have some added responsibilities, and you know, maybe I'll have, I'll have a pretty cool position in the kingdom to come. But he's still going to be getting, working, the master's, working the master's money. There's something else he gets here. The reward, the personal reward, right? The personal reward, the thing that that he would be entrusted to invest later, right? That was, that was not his personal reward. What does he get now? Come and share your master's happiness. Now, let me ask you a question. What is it that you tell your kids all you want them to be is? Happy. Is it possible that when we just constantly keep telling our kids, you've got to be potent, you've got potential, that if you work hard enough, you can be anything you want to be. Look, can we just be honest? Because oftentimes those are code words for you can be wildly successful and have achievement and notoriety and get stuff. Is it possible? Is it possible that happiness is really tied to seeing what we have as the masters. And our happiness, our kids' happiness, is tied to discovering the abilities that we've been given by the master and how to leverage them for his purposes. Imagine teaching your kids that. Well, so the man with two bags of gold came also. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. Again, the servant knows the master. He's excited. He couldn't wait to tell him because all these years he's been living like this joyfully expectant life of purpose. You see, you see what I've gained, master? And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, about three million. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Happy, 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 joy, joy, joy. And then comes the third servant. I'm picturing the look on the guy's face. Because there was other times when I came home from work and Joan had said to the kids, wait till your father gets home. That was a less expectant, well, that was an expectant look, but it was a different kind of expectant look. You got to picture him. He shows up, he's, he's covered in mud, man. He just dug up a, a hole that he probably dug decades before. He looks at Jesus, probably just seeing what had gone down before him. And the man who received the one bag of gold came, Master. He said, Well, I mean, I, here, I knew you're a hard man, and you harvest where you haven't sown, and you gather where you haven't scattered seed. And so, and so I was afraid, and I went out and I, I hid your gold in the ground. And see, here it is everything that, everything that you gave me, I, it belongs to you. It's funny, the first two servants were so excited about the return of the master. You know why? Because they knew the master. They knew the master. The third servant 
Because I would argue he states a false understanding of the master. He lives in such a way, he invests the master's talent, his money in such a way that there's no return to show for them. Why? Because he doesn't understand the master. And because he doesn't understand the master, he's afraid. I was afraid. And I hid. I was afraid. So I hid. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Because I never saw it until this week. It's right out of our creation story. You go back to Genesis, God gives to Adam and Eve everything. I'm entrusting you with everything here. Manage it. Work it. It's all yours for your enjoyment. He allows them to work, to have what, to, to manage what he has. They think, though, because they don't know the master. They think that God might be holding out on them, that he can't be totally trusted because there's this one tree over there that he doesn't seem to want me to eat of. Maybe, maybe he's holding out on me. And so they fall into this deception. They had the opportunity to rely on God, but they don't want to rely on God. They want to rely on themselves. And so they fall prey to the deception and eat of the only tree that God sold them not to. And when God shows up, what do they do? Well, the story is exactly the same. In the story Jesus tells, the guy blames the master. Oh, you want to know why I didn't do anything with that money? Because of you. I know you. You're not nice. And I was afraid. And so it's your fault that I didn't do anything with the money. What does Adam say? Well, it's that woman you gave me. What does Eve say? Well, it's that serpent you allowed to crawl around here. And then God, God's looking for Adam. He searches the garden. God calls out, where are you? And here's what Adam answered. He said, I, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, so I See, when you misunderstand the master, when you begin to think that he can't be trusted or relied upon, do you see where this leads? How can I possibly take what I've been given and invest it on his behalf? He can't be trusted. And so what I need to do is I need to be very, very afraid. I need to be scared. I need to make sure I get what I need to get. I need to watch out for me and my own. And so I'm going to hide my stuff from you. I don't want you to see it, unless I have enough of it that I might think you'd be impressed by it. Then I want you to see it. See, if Adam had understood and trusted in the goodness and provision of God, he would have never been tempted to go it alone. He would have looked and go and said, I trust my dad. I don't need that. He's given me everything that's good and perfect. If the servant had understood the heart of the master, he would have chosen to invest the talents, not bury them. But he didn't know his master. Well, his master replied, oh, I just love Jesus. Jesus is so sweet and kind. He never says anything hard. He really is just lovable. He's like a stuffed animal, Jesus, often. You wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvested where I had not sown and gathered where I haven't scattered seed, huh? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers. So when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. The master just kind of calls him out. I think he says, look, that, I don't think he's agreeing that it's true. I think he's probably like, look, if you actually believe that, it's not true. But if you actually believe that, 
you would have put the money in the bank, so at least I would have gotten interest, but you didn't even do that. Why? Because you were afraid. Because you don't know me. And so you got afraid with what I had given you, and you buried it. You knew exactly where, where it was, so if you needed it, it would be there. It's kind of like my 401k. I kind of picture the guy every once in a while going back and looking at the little hill, you know, where it was buried, going, still there. I'm picturing him losing sleep at night. You know, I don't know if somebody's going to trip over that. What if they find it? See, he didn't know the master. I picture him going, you know, in the summer and sitting down with a cool drink next to the hole he had dug and going, man, if that master doesn't come back soon, I mean, I've been waiting a long time because this is going to be good enough for a Del Boca Vista condo phase two. Jesus goes, this is baloney, man. Don't blame me for this. If you knew me, you would have invested what I gave you. You buried it. This was about you, not me. So, take the bag of gold from him. And give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have, say it with me, an abundance. Scarcity versus abundance. See, scarcity thinking is this self-fulfilling prophecy. If you live like that, that's what you'll achieve. Abundance thinking is, look, my master entrusted me with this, and there's much more where this came from. This is nothing. I know him. I can trust him. I can leverage what he's given me for his purpose. I don't need to hide it or protect it. I can live differently right now in this life with my stuff. I know the master. I know I, I, he's got my back. Whoever does not have, even here's what Jesus says. Oh, he's so sweet and calm. He just never says anything hard, right? Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I remember my grandmother had this crocheted on a pillow. Was... <laughs> weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you've grown up or you're in the church or familiar with the Bible, that saying, weeping and gnashing of teeth, it often gets associated with the concept of hell, and, and sometimes it is associated with the con, con, uh, concept of hell. In fact, Matthew 25, this story that Jesus records, or sorry, that Matthew records, above it and, and below it actually are two parables, both having to do with hell. Reality is Jesus talked about hell a lot. He, he does so in this chapter. Some would count that he talks about it more than heaven. I actually read a pretty convincing quote about this this week. There was a, a woman coming out of a cathedral service in England, and she went up to the bishop and asked him a question. She says, is it true that there's a place called hell? To which apparently he replied, Madam, the scriptures say so. Christian people have always believed so, and the Church of England confesses it. To which she responded, quite convictingly, then in God's name, why didn't you tell us so? Yet in this instance, this actually isn't what Jesus is referring to here. We know that because we're saved by our faith in Christ. Our faith in his life and his death and his resurrection and giving our hearts and his minds and our lives over to him. We're not saved by our works. And so these servants are not saved or damned by their performance. What Jesus is talking about here with weeping and gnashing of teeth is an emotion that I have to be honest, I'm very familiar with because I'm a fan of the New York Metropolitans. 
There has been many, many summer afternoons where in my family room there has been great mourning, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. I could go over all of the scars inflicted over these many decades. That's the concept that Jesus is getting at here. The scriptures replete with instances of weeping and gnashing of teeth that don't have anything to do with hell. In fact, Job at one point says that God was gnashing his teeth. God's not in hell. There's another point, time where the Sanhedrin, uh, Stephen is getting stoned in Acts, and the Sanhedrin is gnashing their teeth at him. And so they weren't in hell. So weeping and gnashing of teeth, it, what it has is it, it's, it conveys a sense of utter frustration. Oh! Anger, mourning, the sense of a, a loss, the sense of missed opportunity. And that makes perfect sense here because this guy was in the inner circle. Three people got chosen to manage the master as well. He had 1.5 million and he blew it. He didn't trust the master. He had an incredible opportunity. His life in this world could have been filled with expectation and excitement and purpose and wonder. His life is in this life and the kingdom to come, he could have been experiencing his master's happiness. But he lived with a sense of deep regret and utter frustration. The servants that understood the master get happiness. The servants who misunderstand the master, who see him as untrustworthy, mean, angry, hard, that service, that servant, and sometimes we, can live in such a way that we wind up with a deep sense of frustration. And I guess that's why our story parallels this story. When we trust the master that he's faithful, and he's a God of abundance and not scarcity, I don't have to bury my treasure. I live my life with very open hands. If you need, you can have some. Money, glory, success, fame, it's not limited. In fact, I don't really have anything of my own. It's all my master's. And what I want to do is he's entrusted me with it. And, and so I'm, I, I know he's, I know the master. So here, you come and, and take, enjoy. When we trust him, we live generously, looking at ourselves and our stuff through the lens of how do I invest this for God? It, it leads to excitement and joy and happiness. Can you sense it? When we don't trust the master, do you know what we do? We start digging holes. We bury our stuff. We hold on to everything so tight. We hoard. We hide. We live in fear. We get anxious and worried. We move to the mountains of Colorado and buy guns. Right? I've got to protect everything I have. You live with this deep sense of frustration, like I'm somehow I missed out. Do you trust the master? Have you learned the lesson of the loaves? Because the story is that every one of us, one day, we got to settle our accounts. And we're going to have to explain what we did with what we were given. All of us have been given the privilege and the responsibility to one day give an account for that. And so our responsibility then is to live in such a way that we're eager for his return and go, Jesus, 
Look what I did with what you gave me. How do you do that? That's a topic for another day, but as the band comes up here, I, every once in a while, every few years, I like to remind you of a sociological study that Tony Campolo talks about a lot. And it's, it's a New Year's topic for me, and so it's been a couple years since I shared it, but I'm going to share it one more time. And, and everybody always asks me, what were those three things again? See, they did this sociological study of people that were 95 years old and older, and they asked them, if you could go back and do it over, what do you wish you knew? How would you live differently if you could do it again? And they, they, they consistently reported three things. The first thing they said is that they would reflect more. They'd stop. They wouldn't just keep grinding out life and kissing days away. They'd start to go, you know what? What do I have that could be offered to God where he could find capacity? What are my passions? What am I interested in? What are the things that really irk me? They said, if I could go back, man, I would start to reflect on some of those things. Because that might be where the master wants you to invest. And the second thing they said is, well, I'd risk more. Well, of course you would. Because when you get to be 95, you start to realize, you know, at the end, it's all going back in the box. It was never really mine anyway. See, if you know the master, really sets you up to be a little freer in life. I doubt God's calling all of you to be pastors. I don't want to lose my job either. But, but you could risk a little more. It doesn't have to just be your money or your job. I mean, how about, how about risking something? How about risking your dignity? How about by, by saying you're sorry to somebody that doesn't deserve it? How about risking, I don't know, something, risking face in a sense and re-engaging in your marriage. What would it take for you to start to go, you know what, I, I don't always have to win. I don't always have to be right. And lastly, they said that they would, they would do something that they would invest in something that would live on beyond them. Because they're 95 and they realize that most of the stuff I spent most of my life on, it's all gone and going away. You see, you've been given great gifts. The master gave you his stuff. You're going to have to give an account of it one day. I don't tell you that because I want you to be afraid. I tell you that because I want you to know the joy and the peace and the happiness and the contentment of knowing the master. Do you know have you learned the lesson of the loaves? Let's stand and close together.